special guest on the uh, Real Guy podcast today is Dave Marciano from the Wicked Tuna Show. Um, also, Dave's got a charter company called AngelicaFisheries.com, and uh, today's sponsors are Waypoint TV and, of course, Kettle and Fire and um, the Boatyard in Fort Lauderdale. Kettle and Fire, um, if you guys are into a healthy lifestyle and into health food, they make a bone broth. They also make Kato soups and classic soups. This stuff promotes a healthy immunity system, a healthy gut, and better complexion. It's just a good way to treat your body. So if you're into health food, get uh, Kettle and Fire. Check them out and use Waypoint as a promo code, and you guys will receive 15% off any order from Kettle and Fire. So um, thanks, Kettle and Fire, for being part of the show. Um, Hope you guys enjoyed this. I certainly did. Um, Dave Marciano, everybody's favorite on Wicked Tuna, spent an hour today recording in the Lunker Dog Studios, and we really appreciate it, and I hope you guys enjoy. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. Today we have none other than Dave Marciano from the hit Wicked Tuna. You can see Wicked Tuna every Sunday night at 9 p.m. on Nat Geo. Nine years on Nat Geo, hit show Wicked Tuna with a phenomenal charter business. Uh, just go to angelicafisheries.com and get all the information on Dave's charter business. Dave, welcome to the Real Guy Podcast. Thanks for being uh, being part of the Real Guy Network. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot for having me, man. How you guys doing down there? You hanging in? <laughs> Well, considering the circumstances, you know, yeah, um, you know, when we emailed back and forth about um, doing the podcast, I think you mentioned the tyrants up there had everything shut down. We're telling everybody what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you know, Massachusetts is a pretty blue state, so um, yeah, you know, it's a. I mean, look, there's no. I know there's no perfect solution. There's no easy answers, but you know, some of this stuff, right? I, you know at least my opinion is it's common sense and there's different ways to skin this cat. But that being said, look, if I was king for a day, things would be different, but I'm not. So we're, (laughs) you know, we, we, we try and work with as a business, we're trying to work with what we got, you know? And I mean, look for me too, I'll be the first to admit, right. You guys know my whole story. I've been very fortunate. I had a few good years you know, because of everything. Right. So I won't say I'm immune to any of this, but you know, I'm in a better situation. I think about all the guys who didn't have the same opportunity as I had. And they, you know, these guys get their homes and everything tied into their boats and they need to go back to work. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, I mean, obviously I still want to, you know, get back to work, but you know, again, I've been fortunate you know, I, and I really think of the other guys. I see these other guys who are literally hanging on by a thread. I mean, I'm right. I'm a little bit better than a thread. Maybe I got a light piece of rope, but you know, we're still hanging on. We still need to get back to business. Right, right. And you've been on the other side, so you, you can appreciate exactly what you got a lot more. Right, you know? right, exactly. Because right? I know, like, I could think back if this happened to me before all that. You know what I mean? I'd I'd be uh, a lot more freaked out. Right. 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 Well, I tell my, I've been telling my friends and some of these younger guys, you know, I'm, I'm 52 now. I just turned 52 yesterday, but you know, I grew up in the uh, boat building world 
So, you know, the economy would take these huge swings and you would really have to go through a lot of crap, you know, (laughs) as a boat builder, you know, I mean, you take it on the chin when things are good, you feel like King Kong, but you know, we've been through everything, but nothing like this, nothing even close. So just when you think, you know, yeah, no. And and, and again, you try and just keep it perspective and know none of us are unique regardless of our situation, you know, and, and I don't, you know, I'm so sick of hearing we're all in this together. Um, you know, the reality is, is we're all boats together in the same storm, but everybody's in a different situation. You know, some, well, some guys are weathering the storm and some guys are floundering on the rocks right now. And I think that's who we got to look out for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know just like, people- just like at sea, you know what I mean? We got to help those guys who are floundering on the rocks. Those of us who are, who, who's, whose ships are in much better shape need to, you know, bring the rest on through. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a common theme in the uh, real guide network is one of the things, one of our slogans, one of our cliches is, you know, real guys help real guys. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, as I hear you, is I understand, you know, I understand, you know, you, you really are thinking about other dudes because you've been there, you did that. And, um, that sort of connection that you have um, with those people that work like you and have, you know, aren't quite as fortunate, you know, that's what being in the real guy network is all about. Let me ask you, how did you, um, how did you stumble across the real guy network? Was it Twitter? I think so. You know what it was? It was, I, I who was it? It was better duck. Yeah, right? he, he started this mess, right? Because he said something <laughs> that I didn't like going way back now to season one, right? Right. And so it was all new to me. So it's like, all right, I don't like I don't like this guy. F this guy. And I blocked him. And <laughs> that was the first time though, like there was there was outrage, I guess, in your little group that I blocked this guy, you know, better duck, right? right. So <laughs> Right, because he look, he was critiquing the show. You know what I mean? And, and uh, you know what can I say? Sometimes I don't take critiquing well, <laughs> right? But it, well, you know, it's funny because we can laugh about it now. Because then you know, time evolved. So so I unblocked him on Twitter, and that made the other the other Twitter guys all happy. And uh, so we continued to communicate, and then you know we. You know, it's actually, I guess we say, even though I don't live in Florida, through our interactions in, you know, Twitter, I guess we've been saying we've become friends. And, you know, that's where I met you. I met you hanging out with him down there one time when I came to Florida. And, you know, we were going to go fishing, but it didn't work out. That was a very generous uh, offer for you to take me to do your topping thing. And, you know, you know, that brings me to, you know, after seeing all you're doing with the pollution down there. You know, it makes me think, geez, I should have done it that time because the way things are going, it's, you know, that that's scary that you might lose that fishery over all that, you know, uh, pollution and development shit, you know, with the with the storage. Right. I've been right, trying right. to follow that as best I can, Jeff. Well, it's funny because I was I was uh, I was going to bring that up um, because, you know, we did the, the Twitter connection and then we had the trip alive thing and. Dave, you can't understand the brownie points you got with the Real Guy Network by um, playing along with Triple Live and talking about Googans and just having a good time. <laughs> yeah, with yeah, 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 yeah. No, because the guys in the Real Guy Network are like, you know, Marciano, that fucking guy, you know, he's like us. You know, he wants to have a good time and, you know, just kind of. Look, kinda... I remember, 
I was a Guggen too once, you know what I mean? So everybody's <laughs> going to start somewhere. I still remember. Who says I'm not even a Guggen now? I'm just, well, it depends on the arena you're in. I'm just, I'm just an advanced level Guggen. <laughs> but the brownie points uh, I, you I got, got my Guggen merit badge. Yeah, the brownie points you got, you know, by, you know, laughing and having a good time with the guys in the network. And then yeah. that triple live thing, you know, that was new. That was before live was like, you know, really yeah. normal. Yeah, yeah. And the amount of people that watched it and reached out and, you know, kind of complimented you on just, you know, having fun with us. It went, right. it went a long way. It went yeah. a long way. No, no, and that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, nope. and it, and it, and that was a new opportunity for me. Like you say, it might have been new for you. And just like this whole journey for me with my circumstance, you know, I'm doing all kinds of new stuff too. It's just like um, a little experience getting set up on this format. It was oh, like, dude. oh man, we're doing a new format. I'm screwed. Yeah, dude. <laughs> but, you know, like you said, if you go into it positive, you're not scared of it. You can tell somebody, yeah. hey, I'm not a technical genius, you know. And we, uh, we, dude, I'm the same way. I'm not a technical genius. Thank God I had chip that's lamont better duck um you know he was the tech guy right, all right, i had right. to do was catch fish and act like an idiot right. and freaking you know people would you know kind of kind of go on but dude, what what um what town do you live in in massachusetts i know i, I live in beverly mass so is that where your boat is what no the boats are in gloucester and the show that which is where most people know me from let's face right. it is seeing uh that on the show and the show is shot in Gloucester. I live in Beverly, which is the, my hometown. And it's about, you know, 15 minutes down the highway from Gloucester. Right. 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 And the thing is, is Gloucester, like Beverly, we have a, we're, you know, it's on the water. We have a coast and there's a harbor here and there's a small fishing port. Right. But let's face it. If you want to be a fisherman, you know, Gloucester Harbor is is where all the action is. That's where the ice companies are. That's where the fish buyers are. Sure. Sure. Like the guys who run out of Beverly are the really smaller guys. And like if you run out of Beverly and you catch fish, you got to throw your fish in the back of your pickup truck and drive it down to the auction or right. drive it down to get sold, right? Where I set up my business in Gloucester because, you know, whatever it is you need, you need to haul out, you need parts for the boat, you need to sell fish, anything fishing related, you know, right. is right in Gloucester because let's face it, Gloucester is, you know, America's oldest seaport. It has a four hundred and fifty year history of fishing down in Gloucester. Exactly, exactly. Did you know that's where I started my fishing? Was right there at Cape Ann Marina? No, I did not. I had no idea. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. My father. Oh, my see, father. now the Cape Ann Marina—that's all the beautiful people over there with the big, with the big sport boats. You know, right. I'm not welcome over there. They don't let me in that pocket lot. I don't blame them. The, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, my 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 dad um, used to go out and catch. Uh, he was he liked scuba diving. Yeah. So he got a Grady White, and he he went to he went to Cape Ann Marina with the Grady White, and then yep. um, he met a whole bunch of dudes that uh, were into the tuna fishing, and then yeah. he got hooked on the tuna fishing, and yep. then. Um, because of the seasons down there, he couldn't stand it any longer, and he yeah. wanted to move to Fort Lauderdale so he could fish year-round. But, yeah, right, right. We, start, we started there in uh, Cape Ann, and then we went across over to Hummerock, and we had uh, we, we fished out of Hummerock for a few years. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's, that's where it all started, catching flounders on the docks of Cape Ann, the smelts, the eels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were those good days. Those were good days. Now – 
Are you, tell me about your first fishing boat that you were able to go catch tunas on. Was that the hard march? No. What no. did you have first? No, well, um, I mean, the first, I mean, I came up, if you want to know the first boat I owned, but like I came up through the industry the old fashioned way, right? I, I started scrubbing bait cups on a potty boat. Right. You know, and I did that through my high school years. And then, uh, you know, then I, I, I started running other boats as captain. Um, and that's where I caught my first tuna fish. And I guess you could say made a name for myself. It was that first commercial fisherman that threw me the keys to his boat. You know, we were, we were a lobster boat. The name of the boat was the Captain Vince 2. Tony Shimatawa was the owner. And he says, you think you can catch these tunas? Because this was in the 80s. This was the peak of the fishery. Right. Um, and so, you know, the prices were really good back then. And uh, he let me run the boat. He, and uh, I made a name for myself because nobody knew who I was. That boat never had a history of tuna fishing. And, um, you know, I don't know if it was I was actually that good or, or those first three years I had a horseshoe up my ass. But, you know, those were the days of, Sometimes we had a few days a month. We had monthly quotas. So if you didn't produce, you were you were out of luck. And, and you know, people started to talk about that boat because we were coming home with fish with every day. And it was uh -huh. actually, I ran that boat for three years. And it was the money I made for my captain's share running that boat that gave me the money to buy my first boat, which was the Angelica Joseph. And what kind right. of boat was that? Now, that was a Jonesport lobster boat. It was a it was a 28-year-old uh, mahogany hull over oak frames. Uh, nice. It was a 28-year-old lobster boat when I bought it. Uh, and, you know, we used it as a gill netter, right? And okay. it was it was a classic starter boat. I mean, it was a cheap boat. It was expensive to insure, but it had good paperwork. In the commercial fishing industry, you know, having the permits to do as many fisheries as possible was real. The real value was. Right. right. So you get one boat and then the idea is, you know, that's a boat that you can afford. And I had that boat for a decade, but ultimately we lost it uh, January 13th, 2003 at 3.35 p.m. We sank coming home with a load of Pollock uh, during our, our winter gillnet Pollock fishery in Gloucester. How far out were you when you went down? We were about 21 miles out. We were on our oh. way home. We had been fishing about 27 miles. Um, you know, and it, it was, uh, you know, again, that morning, that time of year, you know, the the, the water, the air temperature was about five degrees that day. And, you oh know, it gosh. was, but we had exposure suits. And, you know, I used to curse about, you know, our requirements from the Coast Guard about having our life rafts and E-perbs and, survival suits inspected and required training drills for, you know, commercial fishing safety regulations. But I'll tell you one thing, I never complained about those things again after that day. I because, bet. you know what I mean? It is, is, sometimes, again, when you, when you, you know, this is before TV, this is just you're working to pay off the boat, you're working to pay off the house. So the few thousand dollars a year it takes to maintain that stuff and it's required by law, sometimes it's a tough thing when you, you know, it's, it's business like any business. We're not special. So, you yeah. know, we used to grumble about it a little bit, but you know, because of that, you know, it's really because we did those safety drills and we knew our way around our safety equipment. You know, I was fishing, it was myself and two other crewmen. And, you know, we're here to tell the story because that was, 
look, that was a real thing that happened. And, you know, it's yep. funny, you know, when my, my old man asked me about it, he goes, so you're ready to get out of fishing. And, um, you know, I said, no, it was just, you know, it'd be like, look, if you work in an office building and the building catches on fire and everybody gets out alive, would you get out of the insurance business or the car sales business? Of course you would. Yeah, right? good way to look at it. Right. Well, I mean, because it is, though, true, like when it happened, I mean, fishing boats sink every day, just like car accidents. Right. Well, not every day, but fairly frequently accidents right. happen and you never think it's going to be you. You know, and I never right. thought I'd lose that right. boat. I mean, we worked hard. I, I, I was young. I worked hard. I, you know, maybe I pushed the limits, but like, you know, we took care of that boat. Uh, we hauled it out. You know, guys used to make fun of me because I would haul it out three or four times a season instead of once because right. I knew what I had. I had an old wooden boat, uh, and we pushed hard, you know, because you, that's what you did. You pushed you push the limits a little. So I put the money into maintenance. So they, they go, you spend three times the money on maintenance that we do. But, well, I, I was I was working with what I had at the time, and I wanted to make sure that wouldn't happen. You know, ultimately, we um, – what we feel happened was we, we, we popped a butt block. And even though like three years prior, I totally refastened that boat. I put, you know, we hauled it out, one of our haul outs, and we spun in uh, 1,800 silicon bronze screws. Um, you know, 1,800? Yeah. You know, we, <laughs> we only did three. You know, once you do it, you do two on every frame. And, you know, there's a methodology to it, Right. right? But, you, you know, you think about it, we replaced all the butt blocks on the boat, except there was two that I couldn't access um, because of the way the cabin was built. I literally would have had to rip apart the cabin. So that was my, it was like I wasn't ready to, you know, we had, we had completely refabbed the boat. We put sister frames in, you know, replacing new old frames with frames that were older. And, you know right, what I mean? Right. The point was, we spent a lot of money getting the boat ready and, it was in that area where the butt block was. Um, That's where it gave way. You know, where the water came through, you know, it was in that general area. We didn't have much time. Look, we were loaded down with fishing gear. We had 10,000 pounds of fish aboard the boat. We had the gear aboard the boat, which is another 15,000 pounds, uh, maybe even 20 because we were bringing the gear home. So we had it wow. all on board. And, and uh, you, you know, on the boat, too, because I knew. Now, you know those gasoline pumps that usually the Coast Guard drops to people, right? Right. Like, I had one of those on the top bunk on the boat. Because okay. I knew, I said, look, this is an old wooden boat. We work hard all winter long. Someday this might save my ass, right? Sure. As well as, you know, we had three electric, you know, traditional, you know, 2,000, you know, bilge pumps. So, you know, the boat was properly equipped and we had a high water alarms. And, you know, right away, the high water alarm was set just so, you know, if some guts of scales ever plugged the bilge pump, you know, you'd find out you had an issue. You know, I had my high water arm set just above the height of the pump. So, right. you know, early on, you know, it does no good if you put the high water alarm too high. Right? Cause, <laughs> Cause you know, listen, you laugh, but some of the boats I ran as captains, it was like, well, great. You got it two feet above the bulkhead. You know, by the time the high water alarm goes off, I'm not going swimming in the engine room. You know? <laughs> yeah, I do. Right? So, I do. you know, you laugh, but you laugh, but yeah, I've seen it. Right? So, 
So you go, but, you went, you went. So you went we had down. all those pumps ready, and she sank in 33 minutes from the time I notified the Coast Guard that we were taking on water, which was right after the high water alarm went off, to the time I told them we were getting off the boat. And then, and then when the Coast Guard got there, the boat was already under. You guys were just floating. the boat was gone when they got there. Now another fisherman was out there as well, hauling. He was, you know, less, you know, a couple miles away. We were working in the general vicinity together. So once he heard that I was having troubles, he cut off his gear and immediately came alongside, right? So okay. even though now we got the hatches up, we threw all the fish over, we threw all the nets over, right? Because now we get the hatches up. I got all these pumps running. I got the uh, two-and-a-half-inch trash pump running, the gas-powered trash pump. And, I, you know, I'm watching the water come up in the engine room and, you know, whatever we with all those pumps running, we weren't gaining on it. With all the Whoa. we got all the bait off the boat, and you know, while this is all going on, we're still steaming for home. In my mind, even though we have a rocky coastline in New England, I was right. thinking, well, maybe if I could get somewhere where I could beach the boat, I can save the boat, right? But when you think about it, you know, New England is not Florida. If you go on the rocks. It, yeah. it ain't good. <laughs> yeah, that might get a little bit too airy in there. For I sure. mean, we have a limited amount of you know beachfront in New England, but you know that being said, uh, so right away this kid was was right alongside us the whole way home. Like he was watching where I threw over my gear, so we could go back and re try and retrieve some of it at some point. And, you know, he he was less than twenty feet from us the whole time, so I knew. You know, we got our survival suits on. I was communicating with the Coast Guard. So, okay. you know, in the back of my head, I knew even if we lost the boat, as long as we don't do anything stupid and get stuck down inside the boat, we all might hit the water, but this guy's right here, right? Right. You know what I mean? And, and ultimately, you know, that's what happened. Uh, we deployed the life raft. We were towing that. You know, I slowed the boat down to... Um, you know, let the let the guys go over the stern. They got in the life raft. I climbed up on the roof, cut the life raft free, and uh, I kept steaming for home. You know, and again, now I'm in the in the. And so he went back. You know, he was a mile or two back picking up the um, picking up the crew out of the life raft. When you know, and I knew it was happening. That water, even with all three, all four pumps going and the trash pump going. You know, once it hit the breathers, I knew the boat was going to stop. And at this point, the only thing keeping the boat afloat was forward momentum. You know what I mean? The right. entire forecastle was full. The engine room was full. And now it's just coming up the side of the engine. I got my hatches open. And I knew once we hit the breathers, it's game over. And, uh, you know, that's exactly what happened. Eventually, it got to the breathers. The engine stopped instantly. Um, and by the time I stepped away from the pilot house, Right from the wheel to head out the pilot house cabin, you know, in my survival suit, I just was kind of floating and I, you know, did the butterfly stroke right out of the pilot house. Unreal. Unreal. Right. Now, I mean, I've, I've gotten caught in plenty of hairy situations, but nothing like that one day. Holy Moses. <laughs> now, were you, were you married? At the, you were married at the time? What did your wife think about yeah, it? Yeah. No, no, we were married at the time. My kids were young. I think we had one kid and maybe the other one was in the oven, so to speak. Right. Uh, you know, the worst part was, is the Coast Guard was convinced because they didn't get on scene. They didn't like that at all. The boat was gone, right? Yeah. 
So right away, they're, 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 they assume I sunk it for the insurance money, right? Oh. So we get back to the coast. So the guy, we're riding the boat who rescued us in. We go right back to the Coast Guard Station, Gloucester, and they put us in three rooms, and we're all separated, and they want to get everybody's story, right? Because, again, in, in part of me, as remember, before that, there was a period of time when that was happening with great frequency in the Gloucester fishing industry. You know, in the, oh. in, in the 80s, and or I think it was early 90s, there was a lot of big boats. You know, it was a racket. Guys were over-insuring their boats, and then they'd go to George's Bank and lose the boat on a flat, calm day and uh. cash in on the – right? So part of me understands what they were doing, but, like, the worst part about that is, you know, they wanted to get the cruise story before we got mine. So I was sitting there for, you know, my wife knew it happened because, you know, the kid, when we were on his boat, I called the wife and told her, hey, we lost the boat. Come down and bring me some dry clothes. We'll be at the Coast Guard <laughs> station. Right? Yeah. And uh, I had to sit out there for three and a half hours to wait for all these interviews and shit to happen. And, wow. you know, they, right? And then what convinced them, too, is they were like, they were like, you know, you know, the guy flat out said, he said, let me, let me guess. You know, you you sunk the boat for the insurance money, right? And I said, why don't you do this? Why don't you go down the auction and look at my receipts for the past, you know, week to 10 days? Because the right. way it was, too, the reason we were pushing hard, it was classic commercial fishing, right? Mm -hmm. We catch Pollock. Pollock season starts around about uh, Thanksgiving and runs till January, right? The, the Pollock come into spawn. Okay. We lug, we lug hundreds of thousands of pounds of these fish for, you know, we think we're doing good when we get a quarter a pound, right? If you're doing 20 cents, when all the guys are catching them, it, it would drop to 15 cents, right? Right. But now it's January. I'm the last boat in the fleet still on the fish. We're catching anywhere from seven to 10,000 pounds a day, and we're the only boat catching, right? So now these Pollock prices that are normally a quarter had shot up to a buck 40. Right. right. So all of a sudden, the it's it's weeks it's weeks like these when you're a commercial fisherman that can pull your whole year together. Right. Make it right? now. Hey, time. right. And that's what convinced them. I says, you know, look at the past week. I stocked three times the value, the insured value, and you mean to tell me now's a good time for me to decide? You know, I had ten grand worth of fish on the boat the day the boat went down, but you're telling me I sank it for the insurance money. Right, and that's what ultimately convinced them when they when they saw the numbers. They realized that you weren't bullshitting. Right, it was it was like okay, so we were pushing hard, but like we had been out much worse weather than that with the boat. It's just that day something went wrong. Right, right, and then your evolution of 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 boats after that. What did you get into next? Oh well, that that gave me you know look at I love that old Jones Sport Lobster boat. That was my first boat. Right. You know, my first real boat, I had uh, I had a 15-foot Mako skiff when I was a crewman, but that was just my play thing. Right. But, um, you know, that was my first real boat, and that really built my reputation in Gloucester as a fisherman. And, you know, but ultimately after that happened, that's when I got um, the hard merchandise after we lost that boat. And what do they call the hard merchandise? A Novi-style boat? Yeah, it's a Novi boat. It's a classic. Um, it was built in Daniels Head, Nova Scotia. So, um, you know, Daniel's Head is a location in Nova Scotia. You know, and all these Novi boats, 
have slightly different characteristics. You know, but the thing is, is up there in Nova Scotia, number one, you have the exchange rate, which is makes the boats valuable. And number two, they build a good boat because of their fisheries up there. They're great work boats. Right, right. I mean, they're built solid. They're, They're built, you know, they're not fast. They're not luxurious. But if you want to carry weight, and you want to run economically, they're a great boat. It's just right. not built pretty. Built to work. Built to right. work. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, I had a big infatuation with a lot of the boats up there that you lobster guys and fish and commercial guys uh, were using because growing <laughs> up here in Fort Lauderdale, you know, it was the Hatteras's and the Bertrams yeah, and then yeah. the Merritt's <laughs> and the Jim Smith's and the fur know, boats. Oh, just unbelievable. So, you know, I'm, I'm growing up in. Um, I'm thinking to myself, man, I got to make friggin' three, four, five million bucks a year so I can get my sport fish <laughs> exactly. and do what, I'm, do what I'm accustomed to, right? right? So I get to be, you know, in my uh, 40s and I'm realizing to myself, I said, man, I'm kind of running out of time to make all these <laughs> yeah. So I start right. researching boats and I'm thinking to myself, I need a boat that can take me through the Caribbean. Right. That I can run myself, that I can freaking pay for myself, that yeah. I can enjoy with my family and go and catch the marlin and the stuff that I want to catch, yeah. which brought me to Maine. And then I bought yeah. a 46 uh, foot West Mac hull. Yeah. And then we brought it down here. I bought the whole uh, plane up there. Then I brought it yeah. down here and we made it. It was a big build. And yeah. uh, I had a financial partner in it. Thank God. Yeah. But it was one of the it was one of the few sport fishing style boats yeah. that I could actually afford to run myself yeah. through the Caribbean and be able to compete with the Marlin scene and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think a lot of people here, um, because of the new four strokes and the fast, you know, four stroke type boats, yeah. they don't think that way anymore. Right, but, uh, right. When I was sporting that forty six foot. Um, Westmac down here yeah. and people loved it, man. They thought it yeah. was the coolest boat ever. And then yeah. they would start talking about, Oh, it looks like one of those boats on wicked tuna. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so it was that, a new England style build for sure. Yeah. Let me ask you another question about the boats. When I was down there tuna fishing, now this is freaking 1979, 1980, 1981. And I'm with my old man. All these guys, like there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of, uh, well, there was long, there was hand line boats that were commercial guys. Yeah. But everybody that was fishing with a rod and reel had the big fighting chair. Exactly. When the hell did yeah. you guys start putting the rod in the, in the gunnel well, and fighting well, with the rod? Well, commercial fishermen, look, it was after, I, I, you know, I lived through the transition, right? And like the guys who taught me how to fish and probably my first hundred giants I caught with hand line. You know, it wasn't till the idiot sticks became an effective tool where we realized, okay, look, these guys can fish lighter leaders than we can in the hand line. And, you know, the nice thing about an idiot stick is it's a lot safer than a hand line, right? right you can right. even do it alone. But so we, we could see that happening where, okay, these guys are getting more bites with us, you know, the, with the chair boats, we called them. So they started to hook up more than us because they could fine-tune the gear a little better than you can with a hand line and use smaller hooks and and all that, right? Right. So, you know, obviously we wanted to get it, try some of these rod reels, or, you know, we affectionately call them idiot sticks. I always love that term, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, but again, now you're, okay, we can get their rod and you can get a few rod holders, 
But when you start pricing out fighting shares for a commercial fisherman, that's just a non-starter. You know what I mean? Those are like, who's going to, and then, you know, our boats are versatile. It's not like we're going to have a chair in the boat year round and set gill nets over the top of the chair, right? That yeah. just was a non-starter. So it was a commercial fishing fleet that started to just drop the rod in the holder and fight it out of the holder. And and that was, like you said, when, when your dad was up here and probably when you were up here, it was all chair boats down the Cape Ann Marina. Right, and it right. was the commercial fishing that started that transition because all of a sudden they realized now these commercial fishermen started, to, you know, as a group, started to outfish those big fancy sport boats with the fighting chair. They realized right. it's an effective way to do it. Right. Yeah. And now, like the only time you see a fighting chair in the tuna fleet up here is if one of those, you know, billionaire peckerheads. It gets bored, bored with catching big eyes in the canyons and they bring their $15 million, whatever the hell it is, up here to the Cape Ann Marina for a week to come catch a giant bluefin tuna to say they did. Now, is that a big, is that a big, is that a big issue with these rich guys and these fancy boats going? No, look, they, they get it. Look, let's, let's be realistic. Okay. They are the traditional fishermen in this fleet. Until they were worth money, commercial fishermen didn't fish these fish, right? It was, it, you know, and, and it was the idea. Look, years ago, it was all tournament fish, and they had a tournament. And if they sold the fish at all, they got two or three cents a pound for right. cat food. Or or even worse, some of the, you know, there's pictures from the old tournaments. They loaded them up on flatbed trucks and brought them to the dump. Yeah, yeah. No, I right? I tell people about those days because when right. I was, you know, when I was real young, I can remember, you know, the sport fishing guys, you know, either yeah. letting the fish go, right. um, but the commercial guys never even fished them unless the price got, say, over 50 cents a pound or something. Exactly. Right. We, right. And, you know, we're commercial fishermen. We're, it's always about taking advantage of opportunities. So when, you know, we when fish, you know, the market got to the point where, okay, if we can catch a few of these fish, you know, and, and that's when commercial fishermen started to do it. And again, at first, the nice thing about a hand line is, you know, back in the day for 25 bucks, you could be rigged up to catch tuna with a hand line. So right. you went out and you rigged up six baskets, we called them. And right. uh, you, it was like having six rods and reels, right? You, could, yeah. you just needed three skilled people to fight a fish in a hand line. You need the guy fighting the fish. You need a guy behind the guy fighting the fish, running the basket, and then right. you need a guy driving the boat. Right. Um, you know what I mean? So it did take it did take a certain amount of talent. You know, I look back too, and uh, it's funny. All the guys who showed me how to fish, all the old timers who showed me how to fish in a handline, I don't think one of them had all his fingers. <laughs> yeah, well, those fish were big back then, but I can remember yeah. the hand, I can remember the handliners walking down the. Um, walking down the docks and they'd have yeah. their ropes in milk crate baskets yep, yep. all stacked That's... on top of one another. And these guys would have two or three, four baskets all stacked yep. busting their ass walking down the docks with them. And that's what I remember about the hand liners. It is, that was exactly it. You know, yeah. I'll tell you from, if you like to fight fish, right. I mean, there's no better thrill. I was always the best. I was always the guy who fought the fish. You know, okay. uh, I had a knack for that. I liked it. I mean, look, the drag was is you would take that parachute cord 
right? And you'd wear, we'd wear our oil gear or Grundins, right? And, you know, you had the, the gloves on. And uh, they were those yellow gloves with a little, we call them Jap gloves, right? Because they came from China or whatever back in the day. None of these fancy custom brand gloves. But, you know, when a fish ran, you would take a bite around your hip, you know, and you had the rope in one hand in the front and the rope in the other hand in the back, and you would bend it around your hip, and that was your drag. And, it, yeah. and you know, the guy running the basket would have to keep his hands over that basket, and, you know, you'd make like a triangle with the line shooting out in between your thumbs, and that would keep the line from going up over the head and around the body of the guy fighting the fish. Because if you didn't do that, those loops jumping out of the barrel, they could go right around your head. Yeah. Yeah. No, those dudes are freaking crazy in my book. <laughs> no, okay. look, it, it, it was it's a it was quite a thrill because at that level, you talk about a rod and a reel, you know, it really becomes a disadvantage because now the rod bends. And you know, our thing was when you fight them on a hand line, when you get that fish turned around and he's coming your way. As long as you don't stop pulling, he can't turn around. It's only, right, even if you think about it, all the times you fight a fish, right, the rod starts to bend, starts to bend before he runs. And then once he's headed the other way, you ain't stopping him. But yeah. think about it. If you could never allow him to turn their head. Right. No, that makes good sense. Kind of like the way we do wahoos down here. Yep. You yeah. Know, keep that wahoo coming. Right, right. Because uh, if they if they get their head going the other way, you're in a world of hurt. Now, you were always somewhat active on the social media with the Real Guy Network, but I noticed this year when we had that that sewage spill here, yeah. and we started to get into it with the politicians and stuff. I saw you sharing that stuff and actually getting a little bit more active than normal. Yeah, and then I did a little research on you, and you've been fighting with these bastards for years, huh? Well, yeah. I mean, I've always been active in fisheries management. Now, you know, so what I saw what was going on with you is, you know, different circumstance, but different situation, but the same circumstance. You know, and I, I, I could know, again, how important your fishery was to you, and that's exactly what you're fighting for. Look, I don't, I don't you know, I, I can understand because you were giving a good message of what you were talking about with the storage, but I don't know your fishery. I couldn't come down there and go do that, right? Right. But uh, I could understand that you're trying to protect what you know. And, uh, you know, I figured the least I could do with the benefit of, of having a large following is help you get that word out so you can keep what's uh, important to you. Well, and, I just you know, that way, if you keep it healthy, I'll be able to come down there and go catch a few toppings sometimes. Well, but yeah. I wanted to thank you for all that because a lot of the guys in the Real Guy Network saw you sharing that information and, you know, delivering the message and they're like, you know, they could relate and, um, you know, just want to, you know, anybody that had a big reach, you know, that helped right. with us, um, you know, I just want to make sure I thanked you for it. The um, It's a, such a weird situation because, you know, my whole life when we always thought about, you know, conservation and, and and fish populations is it was always like okay well the commercial fishermen or the sport fishermen or whatever it was always like limits on them and it was the guys that would leave shore and go and collect the fish out of the ocean ocean where all the regulation was and in our situation here it's we're trying to save the ocean from the yeah. shit that's coming off the land right 
Right. And and it don't. It don't matter if you're. It don't matter. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to speak over you. It Not don't good. matter uh, if you're commercial or recreational. At least that's one thing we can agree on. We all need a healthy environment to work in. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think through social media and um, in this day and age, I I think the commercial guys and the recre- recreational guys see more things in common, I think, than they ever have. Absolutely. Because, look, that's the key. We all talk, right, about, and I've been saying this for 15, uh, for 20 years, going back 20 years, because I was very active in fisheries management on the commercial end of things, right? Right. The thing the government fears is a unified fishing industry. And when I say unified, that doesn't mean unified commercial, you know, recreational fishermen with their lobbying group and commercial fishermen with their lobbying groups and every other little lobbying group put together, right? Right. They fear a unified voice. Because if you notice, all the regulations, and this is uniform, whether you're talking New England to Florida or the West Coast to California, right? Right. The regulations never impact all the groups equally. There's always this, at least, illusion that those guys got one up. Those guys got a better deal than I got when it comes to individual groups. And right. I believe that you know, managers do that for a reason, because of divide and conquer. And only until once the fishing industry, and when I say fishing industry, my interpretation of that is all the fishermen, potty boats, charter boats, commercial fishermen, gill netters, drift netters, draggers. That's the fishing industry. Now, amongst ourselves, we should keep our feuds amongst ourselves. And I think we're all grown-ups. We could hash things out. But if we have a unified as a group, we could walk over the entire management process. Because yeah. now you'd have enough voices to make a difference. But right now, while it's all splintered, they keep the group splintered because individual groups, there's not enough voices to count for a hill of beans. And right. that, right? And everybody says, oh, well, recreational fishermen or this part of the industry. Well, look it. They may be a larger part than the other parts, but without the, without the other parts, they're certainly not the whole. And if it's working so well, how come they're so unhappy with the situation? Right. I tell you, when um, when I started to speak up here in South Florida against the local governments and the sewage issues, the amount of people <clears throat> that reached out to me and contacted me, pulling me different ways yeah. and feeding me propaganda about certain stories and where I should be and what I should promote and what I shouldn't promote. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like... This is not natural. Nothing that I've ever been a part of um, where there was just one organization after another that had their own little um, agendas. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And they wanted me to be a part of it because we had some sort of momentum. And man, the twisting and the uh, just the crap they would feed you. And it was it was mind boggling to me. It really opened up my mind, my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. It's. It's uh, it's stunning when you see what happens in real life. Yeah, right, right. Well, Dave, listen, um, we're not going to make the podcast crazy long, but I did want to, um, I did want to get you on here. I didn't want to give you the same regular questions like, "What was your yep. biggest fish?" And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, 
mm-hmm. everything about Wicked Tuna because TV is TV, and right. we'll, leave, we'll leave that at that. Right. No, um, and, and you know that's it. I get it. It's not perfect, but everybody understands. It's been a great opportunity for me, my kids. You know, we're building a we're building a fantastic China business. Because I'm a commercial fisherman, first and foremost. It's always been about opportunity. Right. And right now, because of that show, I mean, which charter boat down there wouldn't like to have their charter boat on TV for, you know, 30 weeks a year? Right, right. So that's right. the opportunity, and I'm building that for myself and my son. Now, how, 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 how are you enjoying that transition where you're dealing with more charters now than ever? Well, yes. I, look, I'll, I'll admit... Um, you know, look, I, I got into commercial fishing because I liked the fact it was me and the guys, and I loved hauling gill nets. That was my favorite fishery. That's probably what I did 80% of, you know, in my career as a fisherman, you know, in our, in our gill net fishery up here. And I love that type of fishing, right? But the regulations change, and you have to roll with the punches. And, and you know, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, too, there was regulations that needed to change. To, because of the commercial fisheries, you know what I mean? That yeah, made yeah. commercial fisheries better. I'm not total anti-regulation. I'm just for appropriate regulation. But so part of the change was, you know, like when I started, you could gill net year round, nonstop. There was very little regulation when I was a deckhand, right? And then, you know, so we watched the regulation develop. So you had different times of the year where you couldn't do what you traditionally do. So again, you would get into tuna fishing, you would take a few charters. And uh, so I was familiar with it. Again, I, I cut my teeth scrubbing bait cups on a body boat for the mm-hmm. first you know, 10, 15, 10 years plus. Right. right. So I, I knew all about that industry. And look, because of the show, though, I truly am blessed because we get, you know, um, I can be very selective with my clientele. And sure. you know what I mean? Because I have so much exposure. And that's why if you look at my website, I advertise for the other China guys that I, you know what I mean? I yeah. put links to their website up on my website, right? right? Because I, I'm fortunate. I get a lot of business. I get all the business I need. And, you know, if I, I, I tend to have a good knack. If I go back in a few emails and I get a bad vibe, you know, all of a sudden I go, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm booked that date. Oh, yeah, I booked that date, too. Oh, yeah, I booked that date, too. Oh, yeah, as far as you're concerned, I'm booked up into 2030, right? So I can, you know, my clients, look, it's it's a great gig, right? Because they, they might come, our philosophy is they might come the first time because of the show, you know, other than my regular clientele that I've had for a decade, but they may come for the first time because of the show, they'll come back if we treat them right, yeah. right? So that's yeah. what we're building. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it, they're so easy to please, right? Because, you know, again, other guys, you know, I get it. I was in the China boat industry, too, in a lot of different forms. But I've worn a lot of different hats over here. But, you know, how many times I hear, oh, I can't believe they get on the boat in the morning. I can't believe I'm on this boat. I can't believe I'm meeting you, right? Sure. So sure. that's the attitude of your clients when they set foot on the deck, right? right. And then we go out fishing. I mean, how easy is that? And so all I have to do is take them fishing. I tell them a few sea stories, right? And the older I get, the better the stories get. And we take some pictures and, 
you know, whether we, I hear it all the time and my crew, it's great for my crew. They make, they have a great tip thing going, right? Because right. we hear it all the time, whether fishing is good or bad, people get off the boat and, you know, and we're very proud of it. I love to hear people say to my crew, you know, geez, that was the best fish. I've done a lot of charter trips. I've done a lot of this, but that was the best trip of my life. That's awesome. Right? And now I'll admit, though, it's an unfair advantage because of the show. That certainly allows us to make that much easier to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I experienced that a little bit just because of the YouTube channels. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. They know about you. They know what you're fishing for. They're excited to meet you. Right. And so, yeah, there's a lot to, and you know, it's funny. No, well, no, cause, cause, see, because it's YouTube, Jeff, they give you full credit. They go, well, he built that. He's doing the right thing. You know, I'm right. just going with the haters now, right? Because then when the haters, you know, you know, then they go, oh, he's only making two. It's not fair. I'm doing, you know, and all and all that. And it's very few guys, you know, even in the industry, it's just a small percent who are a little bit butthurt. So, of yeah, course, they always have something bad to say about you. Yeah, the key to success is you got to love your haters. You know what I mean, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> and God knows you get plenty of those out there. But well, it all um, started. All started with the chip, better duck, man. He was he was the original hater. Dude, Chip was not the original hater. You know what Chip did to you? It was like getting in a fight with somebody in middle school and then yeah, yeah. and then becoming their good friend in high school. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now we've done that we've done that through social media for a long time. Yep. And you know, first, you know, like, hey, that guy's an asshole. And they wait a second, that guy's kind of funny. Well, you know, he catches a lot of fish. And then you turn him, and then people appreciate you a little bit more. Yep. So I'm sure that's happening with the Wicked Tuna thing for you. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. especially after the years gone by. I, mean, I got to congratulate you. Ten years on TV? Yeah, that's, that's amazing, insane. right? I mean, we're, we're season 10 is up in the air, right? Season 9 is airing now. And, and they want to do season 10, but obviously this COVID you know, crap, has got that all, um, look, they want to do it, but, you know, it's definitely been a challenge, but we're having discussions about how we could do it, even under worst case scenarios, blah, 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 you know, but it's a challenge. It's not business as usual, even for that, because when you think about it, look, that whole industry shut down with everything else. Movie production shut down. My daughter was working in the, you know, movie production uh, industry right recently down in New Mexico and that all shut down with us all her jobs went away yeah. and you know production like when you think about it we, you know here's the highlight I guess here's a little behind the uh, scenes that might be a tidbit for people who are fans of the show that you know when you think about it in this format the way this went we're going to be one of the first shows back in production after the world has experienced what we're all experiencing, right? Yeah. So we're we're having some serious conversations about, you know, how do we frame this? Because, you know, when we come back after this experience, we don't want to look like a bunch of assholes. Right. Right. You know what I mean? You know, because this is we're 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 you know, especially me, like I put my life uh out in the public forum. And, like, if we play this the wrong way, given the whole world's experience with what we just went through, I think we could come out looking like a bunch of assholes, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Yeah, I can so see we're, that. So we're having an average discussion, you know, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, it's lighthearted, but it's serious that, 
you know, how do we how do we produce this season uh, post, you know, post uh, COVID, or however you, you call it? Well, because I, you know, we need. I, I don't think confrontation. I think we've all seen enough confrontation the past couple of years. You know what I mean? We yeah. we need we need to promote unity. That's my humble opinion, and a lot of the other captains agree. You know, we don't we don't need to be a bunch of peckheads. Well, maybe you can maybe you can maybe you can make up for the uh, well, yeah, you know, like online and stuff, and just being you know being positive. But look, there, there's no law that says gentlemen can't be competitive, is there? There is no law that says that. As a matter of fact, the way I grew up in the fishing world, right, you know, between the tournaments and the boats and the boat companies and that kind of thing, is there yeah. was a time to be friends and then there was a time to be to compete. And yeah, exactly. there'd be egos involved and there'd be some other fucking going on. Right, but for right. the most part, you know what I mean? Exactly. People, people were good. People were good. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Dave, Dave let's, let's, let's end the podcast. I really, I really can't right. thank you enough for being on the Real Guy Network. Sure. With well, we're gonna thanks for having me. We're going to upload this thing next week. And um, right. make sure you tell Jay and your son and your daughter that the Lonker dog was asking for him. Tell him to run that dog. And, <laughs> That's uh, right. I'm going to send them all up some stickers. Awesome. And, um, maybe you guys can have a certified bucket party. You know about certifying <laughs> your bucket, Dave? No. All right. I'm going to send you a, <laughs> a YouTube link. Okay. And, uh, I'm going to send you some stickers. And if you guys uh, got some favorite five-gallon no, buckets send, up send there. It to my, send it to my new Yahoo email address. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you know, I got all that stuff recording. I'm going to edit it up. I, I know. Good. good. Some of the podcast. Oh, yeah, have, have, have fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, thanks a million. Run All right, thank you. And thanks for being on the Real Guy Podcast. All right, thanks for the support. All right, dude, that was great. All right. Yeah, you, hold on one second. I got to stop the recording. <laughs>